After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Welcome back to Mind Rolling, everybody, and I'm Raghu Marcus with my buddy... David Silver in New York. It's so weird that I leave you that space and you jump in there, never on time. Yeah, because, you know, do you want to start again? No. I want to introduce, uh, just by chance, we have the good, great fortune of uh, having Sharon Salzberg with us live, Dave. I mean, live for me, anyhow. Uh, <laughs> Sharon has been here in Asheville doing a wonderful workshop called Loving Kindness in the Face of Adversity. So we we do want to talk a little bit about that as well as just uh, basically schmoozing. Actually, you know, during this whole uh, workshop, Sharon, and I think I mentioned it to you, I have really wanted to honor our original meditation teacher, Sri Goenka, and you wrote uh, just a beautiful piece. I loved it. Um, t- but, you know, one of the interest- interesting things about it was the way that you brought in the conditions that we were experiencing. Can you talk a little bit about that, you know, the condi- related to, you know, Goenka and meditation and so on and so forth? Uh, well, yeah, I wrote that piece uh, for the Daily Beast on on their request, since somebody there was a, a student of Goenkaji's themselves, and I was very surprised to get the request. And media being what it is, I had like you know twelve hours or something to collect my thoughts and write it down. So, uh, of course, he you know he symbolizes for me so much that time in our lives, going to India, not knowing what I'd find or we'd find where. Um, the answers might be where the the good teachers might be, and mm. and how much it almost was like um, before I left uh, Buffalo, New York, which is where I was going to school. Trunk Trunk Rinpoche came to Buffalo. Oh, it was his first visit to the United States. I don't oh. know how he ended up in Buffalo, <laughs> and uh, it was maybe four days before I was going to leave for India. And I didn't know this. Yeah, huh? and. Uh, I went to his lecture, and they asked for written questions at the end. So I wrote out the question, something like, I'm leaving with my friends in like four days for India. I want to study Buddhist meditation. I don't know where to go. Do you have any recommendations? So he had this big pile of questions in front of him, and he pulled it out of the pile. He read it out loud. He was silent for a few moments, and then he said, I think you had perhaps best follow 
the pretense of accident. Oh God, yeah. That was it. That was the blessing. I think you had perhaps best follow the pretense of accident. Mm. So no addresses, no handy monastery guidebook. Just follow the pretense of accident. It was exactly like that. I went to India, and I went up to Dharamsala because I knew the Dalai Lama lived there, and I tried to go to some meditation classes and. There was a you know splendid teacher there, but it was just one of those circumstances where like I'd go to the class, and I'd hear, well, the translator left town for two weeks, so come back in two weeks. So I'd come back in two weeks, and then, <clears throat> you know, something else went wrong. Uh, and then I was in in Dharamsala in a Tibetan restaurant, and I overheard somebody saying there was going to be this international yoga conference in New Delhi. So I thought, oh, I'll go there. That's where I'll find my teacher. Because I had such a yearning to actually learn a method, like something to do, you know, some tools to really help my mind. And so I went to New Delhi, and that was a really awful experience. With <laughs> the low point being the yogis and the swamis um, up on the stage pushing and shoving against each other <laughs> to be the first to grab the mic and speak. Right. But Danny Goldman was delivering a paper at that conference. Oh, wow. Uh, he was at the time a graduate student in psychology and studying meditation, and he delivered a paper at the end of which he said, I'm about to go to Bodh Gaya, this town that has developed around the tree the Buddha is said to have been sitting under when he became enlightened, and I'm going to do an intensive 10-day meditation retreat with, with this man named Goenka. And it's very free of cultural baggage. It's very, um, it's like an immersion course. And I thought, that's it. And it was it. So Danny was like the Pied Piper. And really? you know, all kinds of people followed him to Bodh Gaya. And, and that's how I ended up there with Goenkaji being my first teacher. And uh, back to that time, that was when many of us came over, uh, when Ramdas went back to uh, India after the first time he was there. And he went back in 1970. And many, of, many people went over at that time. But we couldn't find Maharaji. And a bunch of us, uh, I was uh, way down south, actually, at uh, with, uh, Sri Aurobindo, actually. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. where I was, waiting to get the word from Ramdas. But meanwhile, everybody had gone to Bodh Gaya, and, that, and, and that's where we bumped into Sharon, we being a collective we, mm -hmm. and, and became friends all those years ago. I actually met Sharon uh, actually later in 71 or early 72 was the next... Um, was when Ubakin died. I no, think he it died was, in seventy one. It was seventy one. Yeah. So it was later in that year that yeah. that happened. Yeah. Um, and uh, of course, we we we've all been very close since then. And um, Goenka was a very 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 special teacher, and one that uh, it's. It, I mean, I find this interesting. You know, for us, I mean, we are. We come from a lineage of bhakti yoga, obviously, with Neem Karoli Baba, although. He only talked about there is only one, sub-ek was the main, there is only one deity, there is only one love, the, and uh, but we all made our way to this uh, very um, important grounding teaching, meditation. I'd never meditated. Uh, I tried all, you know, TM and all that stuff, but... Uh, like you, Dave, right? I mean, you're. I, I, do you have? Uh, we've never talked about this, David, about your own experience with vipassana and insight meditation. Well, from Trungpa, you know, because I, I was going up to Vermont, 
all the time to Trungpa's meditations and um, really learned that there while concurrently being um, a great devotee at that time of Meher Baba. So the two things were both, you know, rolling on parallel train tracks for me at that time. Mm. Mm. Um, but, I, you know, I mean, as far as it being a foundational teaching, um, isn't it true that His Holiness the Dalai Lama has had his monks train in Vipassana? Uh, this is something I heard. I thought uh, well, there is Vipassana, as, as Dave is saying. It's, it's uh -huh. within the Tibetan system as well. So I don't know if they did it mm. within the Tibetan system or they, they went off. I mean, Gwankaji had taught in Dharamsala. Right. In right a number right. of times. So. so this came over. It's There's a funny parallel here. This came over, and of course, uh, Sharon and two uh, close friends of hers, Joseph Goldstein and Jack Cornfield, uh, um, uh, both uh, the three of them have been major proponents of insight meditation and this particular practice uh, uh, since those days, since they came back from India in the mid-70s. And that has been something that has been extraordinarily beneficial to many, 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 many people. And our side of things, uh, in terms of coming back with something, would probably be, uh, as a practice thing, of course, Kirtan, but the Hanuman Chalisa in particular, which Krishnadas was the first person who actually learned those 40, it's not nothing mm -hmm. to learn, by the <laughs> way, those 40 verses. Now, as you know, because Sharon, you travel with Krishnadas, how many people you see actually know this? It's mm -hmm. staggering. Mm -hmm. And it's a curious combination of, uh, of, of bhakti yoga. I mean, you do these things with Krishnas, mm -hmm. and and mm -hmm. uh, you know. So how do you, how do you see this all fitting together, and so naturally, the bhakti tradition, and and of course the uh, Buddhist tradition that you come out of. Well, more and more, I hear somebody like Krishnas through his own development and practice saying things like, uh, "You're not doing chanting to get high, you know. You're not doing this for a rush. You you know, stay aware. This is this is like your home. This chanting and." Um, you'll find your mind wandering to everything, but just come back. And the the combination of that degree of presence and the power of the chant and the blessing and the whole thing just lifts you up, you know, brings you to another space altogether. But, you know, then he'll go on and say, well, don't get attached because, you know, it's like, uh, it's like truth in all these different forms. In a way, it's evocative of our time around Goenka in those early days where retreats were not silent, totally. Mm. And uh, we had silent days and silent periods, but we weren't always silent. And there was such a bonding yeah. between us all. When mm. we were there, Ramdas was there at my first retreat, and the first copy, the first issue of Be Here Now arrived. Mm. Right. You know, so it's like mm. we're all looking in this box. and uh, mm. It's just an amazing time. Yeah, I... In fact, uh, you know, talk about relationships happening, and and you said, well, we didn't always, we weren't always silent. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if <laughs> I've ever, uh, but uh, my um, my first wife, who I met in India, who Maharaji married us actually, her name is his, her name is Parvati. Uh, she met at the course. A woman was just next to her, right, and. You weren't supposed to have any pictures of gurus. You were not supposed to chat with anybody. But, of course, she had a picture of Maharaji, and, and the woman next to her went, who's that? And she told her the whole story. And this woman was going to go on a trek in Nepal, and she 
she convinced her, if that's the right word, no, come along with me. We're going back to Allahabad, okay? And uh, you can meet uh, my guru, Neem Karoli Bama. She said, okay, because she was fascinated by the picture. And so talk about a bonding at this, because what happened is we went back to Allahabad. She met Maharaj as soon as he, she saw him. She fell apart. She, I mean, I mean, literally, she was crying for about hours. And I mm-hmm. guess it was, this was all released stuff. It was your friend Sunanda who became. Oh, <laughs> yes. And uh, this is a little inside family stuff, folks. But uh, it's a fun story because what happened is my brother, who was with me at the time, decided. Wow, I think I'll comfort that woman. <laughs> and he did. Uh, they got married, and uh, here we are today. That's so, fabulous. yeah, tremendous bonds were created uh, out of that time. And so, I just wanted to honor Goenka. He means so much. Yeah. I mean, this is a practice that has never left me mm-hmm. to this day, every day. And um, that's fantastic. Yeah, I so mean, his contribution is enormous. Like, somebody wrote. Um, an article in the Huffington Post after he died and said something like uh, anyone who's like trying out a mindful breath owes something to Goenka. Mm. It's really Mm. true. Beautiful. You know, uh, but so part of our mind rolling podcast here is Mm -hmm. David and I uh, do our best to take things to the most practical level and I'll tell you folks if you don't know who Sharon is, Sharon Salzberg, Sharon Salzberg dot com please go and check her site out and uh, we're going to tell you about some of her books too in a minute uh, but there's no one more uh, giving more practical information uh, than Sharon and um, I would I would say I mean, David and I have touted Vipassana I mean a lot right David I mean yeah in one form or another you know yeah we have because it's meant so much to our own uh, Maturation, if I dare call it that. Um, you know, you just said, Raga, that uh, Sharon uh, articulates such a, a pragmatic, practical thing, and I wanted to just uh, pay homage to that for a second, which is that uh, one of the things that, that I learned, you know, relatively recently, even given how old I am, um, <laughs> a, about, about coming back, mm-hmm. about returning from the distracting, wandering peripatetic thought forms that invade us, seem to invade us even more when we decide to meditate than generally when we're focused on, I don't know, cleaning the bathroom or something. <laughs> um, and that little thing, and others have had, and if, uh, you know, Sharon's not the only person who said this, but I do know how many times I've seen Sharon discuss with people who may or may not know the intricacies of Buddhism, uh, that simple thing of, it's okay, you can wander, just come back. Hmm. And then you can wander again and just come back. That thing is so deeply, profoundly effective when you're in the midst of meditation. It comes to you immediately. Okay, it's all right. I was thinking about the New York Giants and how lousy they are, or even more ridiculous stuff, if, <laughs> if that's possible. And then I hear Sharon's voice saying, it's okay, just come back. So I'd like you, Sharon, to talk a little about that with our, our listeners who are of all stripes and shades and everything, about just coming back. Mm-hmm. Well, a, a classical meditation approach is to choose an object. It could be anything, really. A sound, a mantra, a visualization, a prayer, or some, something happening in the body, or the feeling of the breath, 
to choose an object that we call the primary object that's like home base and we want to bring our attention there and just settle but what we discover is that almost inevitably you know it's not say 9000 breaths before your mind wanders it is too and it's, uh, it's the New York Giants. It's the fact that Ron Artest, now known as Meta World Peace, has moved to the New York Knicks. And it's, you know, like, <laughs> which Rocky just reminded me of. And it's, you know, I have to grow a garden, but wait, I don't have garden land. I have to move, you know, or, or whatever it is. And and, and uh, we say the magic moment in meditation actually happens the moment you realize you've been gone. You've already been lost. You've fallen asleep. Or you've gotten distracted. Because that's the moment we have the chance to be really different. So instead of piling on and judging ourselves and blaming ourselves and feeling like a failure, we have the opportunity to let go and begin again. And that's how progress actually happens. People often think, well, I have to get like a stranglehold on the breath and then my mind won't wander. Or, you know, I've got to like hate everything that comes up in my mind so that I can be more concentrated. And, but the, the only effective tool for actually making progress is being able to let go and begin again. That's how the whole thing works. And I think, I suspect that's how maybe everything works. Mm. You know, mm. it's not just meditation. Mm. But the, the, in fact, you know, you brought up something because, you know, Sharon has been teaching, as I said, uh, for a few days here in Asheville. And that is probably a primary reassuring um central theme mm -hmm. that you have brought up uh, about don't get lost just come back don't worry it's okay it's okay you can come back on all levels not yeah. as you yeah. just said not just the meditative level um we uh as i said this uh, topic uh, um was uh loving kindness in the face of adversity um now i don't think I think our listeners and uh, people, our little uh, mind-rolling community, by the way, we've talked about where mind-rolling comes from before. I think you the last time, the uh, yeah. uh, mind-rolling, it's that right. the garden uh, yeah. from, and, and I got it from um, Kandro Rinpoche, mm -hmm. who I love, who, mm -hmm. by the way, folks, is fantastic, also mm -hmm. speaks perfect English, one of the few Tibetans that, yeah. that teaches of that level, I think. Um, and so, she's a woman. And she's a woman, which is also uh, mm -hmm. very special. Um, so I think that yeah, most of us, our idea of meta probably is around uh, Ron Artest changing his name. And I mean, you know, it is a great thing that he did this, okay? The fact that he, by the way, the little altercation that you talked about, uh, that got in the news again. Meta World Peace punches out another play. He ooh, whacked somebody ooh. and he got suspended and it cost the Lakers the playoffs a couple of years ago, I think. So, But Ron is really, a Meta World Peace is reforming and he's going to be a model <laughs> citizen for the Knicks, don't you worry. Uh, so let's, uh, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit uh, about what mm -hmm. Meta really is. Okay, so Meta, M-E-T-T-A, uh, Ron's new first name is uh, is a Pali word. Pali is the language of the original Buddhist text, and the word means, or it's usually translated as loving kindness. Uh, sometimes it's translated as love, and it it more literally means friendship. So uh, sometimes we describe it as a very deep, almost like a bone deep sense of how connected we all are. And it's a beautiful word. It's a beautiful name. Mm. I'm sorry to hear he punched out <laughs> another player. <laughs> I tell the story when I was teaching about how when I knew something had happened, I didn't know what. 
people started friends started sending me all these headlines like oh meta fails us <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah uh but it's it's a it's a very intricate idea it's a very subtle idea it's not easy for us except through experience like through experience we can know it you know what does it mean to feel connected to somebody but not like them necessarily or invite them to move in or give them all your money or anything like that but to uh, it's a little bit like saying everybody counts, everybody matters, whatever mm. our particular relationship is going to be to them. Sharon, would you tell the story that you tell about the grocery clerk? Oh yeah. <laughs> would you? Would you? Would you just tell that again, please? <laughs> sure. I uh, uh, had a sublet apartment in New York City. I'm now in a different one, but in that particular neighborhood, um, there was a little convenience store that I would often go in. And then a friend of mine who was a writer was also living in that neighborhood. And uh, he wrote a book in, in which uh, I was reading. He said that um, he would often go into this convenience store, and I knew exactly which one he was talking about because we lived right near each other. And he would see this particular clerk working there, and he hardly noticed anything about her. He felt sort of a big indifference toward her. And um, you know, he had a vague, vague impression that she was somewhat sullen or unhappy or grim, but very vague. It was mostly just like a blank, and he was appalled when he realized how little he noticed her. And the way he put it was, um, she might as well have been a cash register with arms. Hmm. For all oh, I noticed boy. her humanity, and he was so upset that he he <clears throat> went into the store very determined to pay full attention to her. So the first thing he noticed was that she was singing along to something going on in the radio and that she had an exquisitely beautiful voice. So he said to her, wow, you have a really beautiful voice. And he said, she, he wrote, you know, she lit up, like became just radiant, this big, beautiful smile. So I was reading that and I knew exactly who he was talking about since I too went into the store and I realized, <laughs> you know, I don't really know, I haven't really noticed her either. And the same kind of impression that maybe she was a little grim, but very vague. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go into the store. And you can't really say, I read you have a really beautiful voice because that's like completely paranoia making. But <laughs> I can say, I heard you had a really beautiful voice because, you know, they could have come up in conversation somewhere. And so I'm going to go in and I'm going to say, I heard you have a really beautiful voice in her normally somewhat sullen, grim countenance is going to light up. and She's going to give me this big, beautiful, radiant smile. So I went into the store all prepared to do that, but she was already radiant, and she gave me this big, beautiful smile, and <laughs> I thought, oh, look at that. <laughs> you know, how much might I have missed of yeah. her in an ordinary way, just not really paying attention to her? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't know if I've ever told you. We, we did a podcast... I, did this come out of that Norman Fisher uh, podcast? Uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure, but David, the Simone Weil quote. No, no, it, you you saw it within an article in the Times. Uh huh. Right. And right. and you were as I was. You were very struck by the pithy. The it's pithy just what you were talking. She about. made. You know, she, Simone made this great. I mean, tell tell Sharon. Well, it's uh, she. I, I'll have to paraphrase. I don't remember the exact words, but the most radical uh, action that you can take in this life is to pay attention to mm -hmm. the person. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, that sort of fits in with, yeah. with we were just talking about uh, Danny. We're we're banding about names, uh, you know, as if everybody knows them. Although Danny Goldman wrote a wonderful book called Emotional Intelligence many years ago, was on Oprah, sold a gazillion copies. Mm-hmm. And uh, Danny, uh, who uh, Sharon just mentioned, is somebody I was in India with. Uh, we went over together around the same time with uh, back with Ramdas, and, and Danny uh, just uh, wrote this fantastic article about the disparity that is uh, growing by leaps and bounds with people in positions of power and people, wealthy people how they absolutely do not see people beneath their station. Mm-hmm. And, and this is such a perfect example. And, and you can see this, the, the way in this with which this is, dis, is uh, helping to cause disintegration of, of our caring, which is what we were talking mm-hmm. about with, uh, with uh, loving kindness. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, what... What what are the things that you can suggest to people? Again, everything we try and do here is practical, and I know that you you, you would never say you need to you know become a Buddhist mm-hmm. or anything like that. Well, what are some of the practical ways that you can suggest to cut through just what we're talking mm-hmm. about and be able to connect with people, but using activating uh, loving kindness mm-hmm. practice. Yeah, I, mean, I would definitely not say you need to become a Buddhist, and that was one of Goenka's main legacies, aside from the extraordinary method uh, to us. That first night of my first retreat in January of 1971, uh, Goenkaji opened by saying something like, the Buddha did not teach Buddhism, the Buddha taught a way of life. Mm. And that was so much the foundation of my entire spiritual life, that just as you with Maharaji had sub ek you know, it was like, well, it's all one. Um, it, it was so pivotal to my understanding. So I would definitely not say you need to become anything, but uh, meditation is attention training. That's exactly what it is. And we mm. can train our attention to, you know, like when you're in the grocery store and you're not really looking at that clerk and you're thinking like a billion other things and you realize that you know how to return and just gather and actually be there even if it means beginning again and again and again, you know, you know it's worth doing and you know how to do it. Or you're um, looking at somebody, but you realize that you're very preconditioned to think of them in a certain way because what you heard about them or something. And, and maybe you're aware enough to say, well, you know what? Let me find out for myself what I think of them. Let me not be so caught up in that comment somebody else made. So, mm. It's attention training and letting go, putting things aside, focusing, um, remembering what makes us happy, remembering what we care about. You know, we can go into a conversation motivated by a billion different things, and we can know that. You know, I want to have this person feel better. I want to have them feel worse. I want to mm-hmm. win. I want to come to reconciliation. It could be anything, and we can train our attention to notice where we're coming from and also modulate like we remember, oh, you know, the last time I set, sent an email like that didn't turn out that well, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Let me try to rephrase this. <laughs> or, mm-hmm. You know, so, so meditation is attention training, and we say loving kindness and compassion follow attention. That if we train our attention to be there, to do that radical act of actually being there, um, to be open, to be interested, 
that loving kindness and compassion will come from that. Mm. But, um, not but, but what are some of the actual, uh, give us a little bit of the mm-hmm. practice, uh, loving kindness practice. practice? Yeah. Well, in formal loving kindness practice, which is a wonderful thing to experiment with, um, you would choose certain phrases that would be expressions of the heart and make an offering of them, first to yourself and then to others. You know, usually, say, if we think of ourselves at the end of the day, it's probably more in the line of, well, I should have gone earlier and gotten a better seat in the airport, or, you know, uh, I made that stupid mistake, and I could have done that better, and why did I do that? And we don't necessarily give any airtime to just wishing ourselves well or being kind to ourselves. And so that's what we're doing through those phrases. We're not trying to manufacture a feeling or be phony about anything, but we're really just trying to expand our field of how we pay attention. So we choose like three or four phrases and we silently repeat them, making that offering to ourselves like, may I be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease, which means in the things of day-to-day life, May I not struggle, livelihood, family, things like that. May I live with ease. And Krishnadas ends actually all of his kirtans with his version, you know, just to give an example of how the phrases become your own. You know, you you should feel totally free to modulate them. Like, what are his, something like, uh, may all beings, including ourselves, be happy, have good health and enough to eat. Uh, may we live with ease of heart with whatever comes, comes our, our way, way in life. Yeah, yeah, no, beautiful. And so, you know, we begin in the formal practice that offering to ourselves and then we expand. Maybe someone who's helped us and we feel grateful to. We try to get an image of them or just a feeling for them and offer the phrases to them, which means offering the phrases of the vehicle for the heart space. And And then maybe a friend or maybe that grocery store clerk or even someone you're having difficulty with and then all beings in that very great expanse. Mm. Um, and you mentioned uh, something in the workshop that I think uh, is, uh, is really important, actually, and that is how people practice this. And, you know, many people have come through you and other people and practiced this and said to you, I didn't feel anything. Mm-hmm. Tell us, you know, some story. There's a couple of stories there about mm-hmm. w- the reality of what goes on that is not necessarily right on the surface or mm-hmm. instantaneous, which is what mm-hmm. we like in America or in the West. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, some of it has to do with our identification of love as an emotion, which it isn't necessarily. Mm. It could be recognition, like you count. Right. It could be inclusion, like I'm listening to you. Uh, you know, so. It, it's because we, we tend to identify love simply or only as an emotion, then we also try to assess our practice. Why well, didn't feel love? I felt it maybe yesterday for three minutes. Why isn't it 18 minutes today? You know, But I've seen a thousand times or more that the practice is working even if it's not manifesting on the emotional level. You know, our intentionality, um, our worldview. Mm-hmm. Uh, like our being, it's shifting, even if we're not feeling that rush of emotion. So I've seen a lot of people be very disappointed because they're not feeling that rush of emotion, but it really doesn't matter. And it's also true that we may see, we will see differences in our life, usually far before we see differences sitting on the cushion. Mm. And so um, I told this one story about this guy who took me out to lunch in New York City, and 
he said to me, you know, I've been practicing loving kindness as my meditation practice for about three years now, whether I'm on retreat or I'm sitting at home each day. And he said, I can't say that my formal experience when I'm sitting is all that different now than it was three years ago, but I'm like a different person. I'm different with myself. I'm different with my family. I'm different ethically. I'm different with my community. And he looked at me and he said, is that enough? And I said, I kind of think it's enough, (laughs) actually. Really? Oh, boy. It's like you were saying before, Sharon, that it's not just in meditation, but it's throughout everything that these sort of maxims hold true. You know, Mm -hmm. coming back to attention is not necessarily part of a meditative process, if you like, but as Ramdas, to quote him, says all the time, you know who you are and where you are when you're either with your family or in the supermarket behind an extremely slow elderly person. <laughs> and, you know, um, I find this to be um, absolutely true on every single day of my life. Because for whatever reasons that we can talk about, but are still theories, matters of karma and what's well, already in your DNA, it seems, you react, you know. But what I've learned through the insight is to not get too guilty about that reaction, mm-hmm. you know, that suddenly you're angry, you know. A lot of people exhibit this uh, while driving. The sweetest, greatest people, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and then you get into a car, and in the city in particular, and curse words, you know, that will be used by, you know, Somalian um, <laughs> attackers of uh, pirates uh, that's come out, and I, I shouldn't, restrict that to Somalians. Uh, <laughs> you know, in fact, they're lovely people in 12,000. You, you could have said truck drivers. And that, yeah. that well, it's, it's, it's wrong to say anybody. I should say myself, really. Yeah. I can swear like anyone. And, and, but it's just the business of not being quite so self-deprecating mm-hmm. immediately. What comes back, I mean, I'm, I, the guy who said he was uh, doing a practice for three years, after that amount of time, it becomes as big a reflex as the original reaction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It does grow. People who say it doesn't seem to work. I mean, it grows in me because I can be very grouchy, but I can also see now, oh, I'm being grouchy. Please just stop. It's, mm-hmm, so, it's mm-hmm. just, you know, it's not pleasant for you, and it's certainly not pleasant for your friend here. It comes back quicker. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I wanted to ask you to clarify something, which is um, you've said in, in, your, in your classes and that you know the word love is, has I'm not sure you put it like this but sometimes it's difficult for people to use it particularly with people that they don't actually feel that they love so I think metta is more about that connectivity mm-hmm. which is not based on the same subtext as the word love and I'd like you to amplify that a little because I think mm-hmm. it's very crucial well, some people actually prefer the translation of love for metta rather than loving kindness but I think it's too confusing, really, for us, often, um, because we use the word love in so many different ways. We can use it really to, frankly, mean a medium of exchange, like I will love you as long as you love me in return, or uh, as long as you behave in a certain way, or I will love myself as long as I never make a mistake. So it's clearly that kind of meaning of love is so fragile, it's so breakable, and it it's not sustainable or renewable the way metta is because it's so based on circumstance. And so um, that was one of the reasons I wanted, I had hoped that the word metta itself would enter the culture because 
to call it loving kindness is maybe a little strange because people don't go around talking about loving kindness that commonly. And so my concern was that that might make the trait or the quality itself seem somewhat arcane and removed from day-to-day life. To call it love brings us right into that territory of what, what do I mean by love? Um, is it just sentimentality? Is it being conflict avoidant? Is it, is it gooey? Is it got to feel a certain way? Is it so conditioned uh, by circumstance that it's that fragile? You know, what do I mean? And friendship mm. is, is the literal translation, but that's maybe um, not always going to have the intensity for people that I think Meta can can have and so it's okay to call it meta <laughs> except nobody even knows what you're talking about so you have to find some way of, of talking mm-hmm. about it we just have to hope that that uh, meta world peace ron he really comes into it and, <laughs> and becomes meta and therefore becomes an example so everybody knows what meta really is not what you have done a couple of times uh, meta world peace who i love by the way <laughs> do you oh love him you know, come. it's funny. You come I, to I, next I, game I'm going to come to the next game with you. <laughs> okay. Yeah, absolutely. And David. I, I, I saw Ricky Gervais being interviewed on television last week. And he's a particularly harsh and cruel comedian and also a self-confessed agnostic. But at the end of the interview, uh, Pierce Morgan asked him, well, what do you like? I mean, what do you believe in? He said, well, first of all, I, I would differentiate spirituality, which I have no problem with. The only thing I believe in is kindness. Mm. Nice. The only thing. And he said it just like His Holiness mm. said it. Mm. Really? And, and his new series on television is about an unfortunate, you know, a malheureux in society uh, who is just a reject. And even though it's funny and uh, a little Gervaisish, a little cruel, it's about how this person gets through other people's rejection of him. Mm. And, I, you know, it just goes to show that, that, that kindness, you know, pervades even cruel comedians, you know, mm. um, and, and when His Holiness did say recently, my only religion is kindness, is that correct? Is that yes. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he says it many yeah. times. Yeah. My goodness, I mean, that just is so powerful, isn't it, in a world, the world we live in, where there's so much paranoia and fear, um, and, and alienation, too. But, you know, loving kindness isn't a big stretch from that, is it? I mean, you know, but kindness works. The word kindness is, is still powerful. I find. Uh, Well, I I admire that because a lot of times I think kindness is considered a little weak or wimpy, and um, I I think it takes a good discernment and sensitivity to realize, oh, it's a power, it's a force. Mm. I've often felt like kindness in this culture is seen as sort of a secondary virtue. Like if you can't be courageous and you can't be brilliant and you can't be wonderful, it's like, okay, be kind, you know, it's nice. Mm. Yes, mm. that should be flopped. And His Holiness the Dalai Lama, if anybody is trying to do that, it is he. Um, and and I know I've been telling Sharon and David about uh, being with the Dalai Lama uh, earlier this week. Um, and we did another podcast, the uh, last podcast, and, and I talked about it, so I won't re- repeat it. But uh, he absolutely embodies... Uh, it was all about secular ethics, meaning you do not have to be attached to any religion, any any organized spiritual lineage or anything to develop compassion, kindness, forgiveness, and, and all of those qualities. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I want to talk about, uh, Sharon has a new book, and uh, the the... 
I haven't read it because you just brought it. So, uh, you know, I'm being like I know something. Uh, (laughs) But I think I do know one thing that a primary, and it's uh, Sharon and Robert Thurman. And Robert Thurman is a famous, famous Tibetan scholar, very close to His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And uh, has uh, been an, uh, an advocate beyond anybody, and his, uh, Sharon and he are very friendly. Um, and so Sharon co-wrote this book with him. How to? What? Okay, give me the title. I don't even have the uh, title. It's called Love Your Enemies. Love your. I was going to say how to love your enemies. <laughs> uh, there is a how-to there, a little bit. Uh, the uh, would you say that the central thing dealing with anger. Right, is certainly a big part of this mm-hmm, book. Mm-hmm. So, David, I don't think you need to read this, nor do I, because that's not something uh, that uh, a disturbing emotion <laughs> that we've had to deal with. <laughs> so, Sharon should just talk to the rest of our <laughs> audience uh, who may have. No, we're the worst offenders. I don't know. Maybe I'm. You're not so bad, Dave. No, I'm bad. Saying. You're bad. I'm bad. Okay. Well, I'm particularly bad with with things like music and movies where I will, you know, become vituperative and horrendously critical of anything which doesn't fit into my taste thing. Uh, that's not uh, anger. That's just effete Britishism of some sort. All right, then let's go to uh, Republicans. <laughs> oh, yeah, you do get angry there. Ted Cruz, yes, you've railed out about him. Um, and uh, I, Can we just say that uh, Sharon's book is available on Amazon? Is it available on Audible? It's just, Sharon. is it out yet, Sharon? It is out. It came out October 1st, but it's not available. There's no um, audio version of it as of yet. Okay, but, but it is on Amazon, and we've got to do yeah. a very crass thing here, uh, which is to say that uh, please, if you want to buy anything on Amazon from Sharon's book to a lawnmower, uh, just go <laughs> through the mind drolling po- uh, podcast portal on our website and, and buy it there. Just, it, it doesn't make any difference to you. You just hit that portal and it'll go straight to Amazon and we get a small percentage and it keeps Rago and I from, uh, from yelling at each other. I'll tell <laughs> so, you, well, <laughs> no, uh, Sharon, last time, somehow David talked about um, maybe uh, getting over to uh, Benares. He was feeling, he was depressed last week for a minute and he, he was thinking, do they actually, like, can you just go there and they can just start burning you even if you haven't died yet? Oh, I good mean, Lord. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit of a dark uh, podcast that we did. And uh, so we fundraised through the whole podcast to get enough wood, because I told the whole story about <laughs> you need to have enough wood to complete the burn the bodies or the dolphins in the Ganga, in the Ganges, were going to eat you up. So that was the theme of our podcast last time. So go to Amazon. And, and, so, yeah, and, so please and do. I, I have to put this in every time. I have to, otherwise I feel like a real idiot. Go to Amazon unless there's a really terrific small bookstore near you that needs support and has that book for, what, $3 more? Go there, buy it there. But if you don't, if you don't have that, uh, buy you know, Sharon's book and all her books and Thurman's and Cornfields and the rest of the Buddhist you know, maestros and buy it through Amazon because Amazon has everything, it seems to me. Yes, so, they do. Um, yeah. Mindrollingpodcast.com. Please go there and uh, do put it in your browser so that whenever you go buy something from Amazon, we'll get the benefit of it. I must, so, I must m- mention this to Sharon, though. We talked about the Bardo Guidebook by Chucky, or again, you know, him, uh, Ch- the Chucky Rim to Sharon. <laughs> and the Bardo Guidebook has been a book in my life for 20 years. And I suggested people buy it, and then someone wrote to me and said, yeah, well, on Amazon, I can't find it. It was $200. Um, uh, there were only two copies, apparently. 
of this book by, uh, you know, this incredible Lama. Uh, so I, I'm going to be careful about this because if the book is ridiculously expensive, obviously it's difficult to get it. But uh, most books are cheaper on Amazon, I think. I think even yours are, Sharon. Mm-hmm, of I course. Think, I, think, I think they are. <laughs> Would you, um, oh, are you all right? I am. Okay. I'm okay. just drinking um, water. Uh, we, what, what I'd like, I don't know what you were going to say, Dave, but... Um, no, no, nothing of importance, really. Oh, good. Um, I do want you to just give us a little bit about the, the book, the new book. Yes. So the book is called Love Your... <coughs> excuse me. The book is called Love Your Enemies. Uh, it is co-written with Bob Thurman. And uh, I'm proud to say we're still friends. A lot of people <laughs> said, oh, if you write a book... I've never written a book with anybody else. Oh. And they say, oh, you know, that's a tough thing to do. And I hope you're not enemies by the end. <laughs> and so we had a, a book launch party the other night. We were like triumphant. <laughs> you know, we're still friends. Um, and we each wrote separately. So uh, there are two voices in there. They're actually in two different fonts. And, and I think that's great because Bob is a tremendous scholar, which I am not. And... Um, and I also have the benefit of a lot of people's experience because I teach so many people. And so we kind of wove together these different perspectives. The skeleton of the book is actually Tibetan Buddhist teaching about four kinds of enemies, uh, the outer enemy, which is obvious, you know, somebody who's hurt you or harmed you, the inner enemy, which is a state like anger, not feeling it necessarily as a problem, but getting overwhelmed by it, having it drive you to action, which we know can be really regrettable action. So that's like the inner enemy, the secret enemy, which is the construct of self, feeling identified with this completely separate in control self, seemingly in control self. And the super secret enemy, um, which is a kind of self-loathing, feeling you're not capable of change, of of doing anything about the other three. So it's those four enemies that mm. we, we talk about in the book. Oh, that's fantastic. I can't wait to read it. Um, Nor me. I can't wait either. We we had yeah. a bunch of copies, and unfortunately we sold them all, and now we don't have any, and we're going to have to order we'll have one to from Amazon. One. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll order one for you Yo, from Amazon. Oh, through, through the portal. Through, through the right. portal. Okay, great. Um, no, one th- one other thing to say. You know, we've we're talking about all of these concepts, ways in which uh, we can be way more balanced in our lives and and deal with all of the disturbing emotions that come up. And you know, and this is why. I mean, this is Sharon went to India. You know, she was you know uh, very uh, had had a lot of tough stuff happen to mm-hmm. her in her life, mm-hmm. as many people do. Um, you know, I heard about Ramdas and, and I, okay, so the first thing that made sense, I was an angry young man talking about anger. Uh, and, and so I wanted a way to get out of that. And, and David, uh, you know, can tell you a similar story, uh, back then of, of, of just wanting to grab onto some way to transform this pain and suffering. And so I, I have to say to everybody out there. This isn't, again, I'm reiterating, this is not a matter of joining anything. This is not a matter of following anything. I mean, we talk about uh, gurus and so on and so forth, but uh, forget about all that. You know, when that's supposed to happen, the right teacher will come along, a guru will come along, doesn't have to be in a body, 
but just dealing with the day-to-day suffering that we all deal with. And as time goes on, it doesn't get lighter. It gets uh, a, a, quite a bit heavier. So, uh, you know, uh, I, I would love for you to talk about a little bit of what you talked about uh, this morning, actually. Uh, Sharon did a, a talk this morning. Um, just just around uh, that particular uh, uh, subject of of that's why we practice and, mm-hmm. and just doing that, you know, mm-hmm. maybe you can talk about that. Well, I started with this story that I've often told about being interviewed once for a good housekeeping magazine, and oh, uh, right. which is very funny, <laughs> really, if you've ever seen my house. Um, <laughs> and, and actually, my part of the interview, my response never made it into the article, but the article was about something like, how can mindfulness be of help in a time of utter crisis? And my response was, I wouldn't wait. You know, sometimes we do wait, and mm. things are falling apart, and it's all dreadful. And and it's not that we cannot pick up those tools in, in those times, but it's so much easier if we have a practice. We, we know, we feel familiarity, we feel comfort in returning to ourselves, in paying attention, in having loving kindness. So why wait? You know, don't wait until it's like so hard if you have that option, which is kind of a luxury. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I tell the story about recently sitting with one of my Tibetan teachers, Sonny Rinpoche, um, at the Garrison Institute, and he told this story. He said something like, in Tibet we have the saying, uh, it's when your stomach feels really fine that you should build the outhouse, because then when you have diarrhea, you can just run right into it. <laughs> yeah, that's the best. And I thought, oh, that's just the same thing, <laughs> you know, is what I was trying to say. To the point. I mean, there isn't any more. <laughs> Get you right to the point there, especially if you've been in India, folks. Yeah. <laughs> the first thing you do, the first thing that you do when you get to India is you locate every bathroom. And you know what, Maharaji Nimkaroli Baba was called at one point Tatiwala Baba, which means toilet Baba, because whenever he first went and built any temple or ashram. The first thing he did was put bathrooms in, and he used mm. to sit in front of the the showers, not showers. The, the, <laughs> they don't have showers, but it, the washrooms, uh, and he used to give darshan there. So yeah, so if you've been to India, you really know what the hell we're talking about there. But but it but you know you made the point too because somebody asked a question about being in a very critical situation with a family member who is very very sick, another person who had not. Uh, who had a friend and she couldn't handle the, the friend's passing and backed away from her. And I mean, this woman just broke down in the cl- in the yeah. Uh, yeah. workshop this morning, and and there isn't a greater point than this that when you're feeling fine, yeah, get used to it. Yeah. you know, yeah. get used yeah. to it. And uh, you know, I think that's a tremendous uh, teaching. Um, so we're coming to the end of our little deal here. Uh, but, uh, Mr. Silver, do you have any, since you have unfortunately not just spent three days with this wonderful friend, uh, yeah. you, I, I want to give you a chance to, to well, ask know, something. I, I, I wouldn't, it's just, I just want to flatter, not ask. Flatter. Yeah. Which is, quite honestly, between, you know, Sharon and... Pema Chodron and another Sharon, which is Sharon Gatti, the uh, expression meaning sender. Oh, so, it's, so between, so <laughs> between Sharon, Sharon Gatti 
and Sharon Salzberg, I have uh, surrendered uh, a great deal of nervousness. And for those of you out there who are highly strong and get, you know, wrapped up in things and everything, uh, go to one of Sharon's classes if possible. And certainly, I'm excited about reading anything that she's done. And with Thurman, that's going to be a whole other thing. I love the, the two fonts thing. <laughs> uh, that's just so clever. But I encourage our listeners to uh, come into contact in any way they can with, with Sharon's articulation of these deep wisdoms that come out as being very practical, uh, you know, doable things that help. Because we all need help. And it's helped me, so I want to thank you, Sharon, for that. Oh, well, thank, thank you so you. much. It's great to see you. Yeah, you too. Uh, it's it's just so valuable. So we have to stop now, really. Well, I just... And, okay. and Sarago, you I do don't want to stop. Nor do I, but... but I know we do, but I, I have to tell you, I did tell you, David spends more time with you than anybody that you know, really? certainly in the last number of months. Wow. And that is because yeah. David is, uh, Sharon does uh, retreats with Ram Das and Krishna Das quite often. And David has been working on oh. <laughs> editing, you see. So he, has been, <laughs> he lives with you day to day, which That's is fabulous. why. <laughs> well, so, just to give you an idea of what that means, we're doing a piece with Sharon and Katie and, and Ram Das and Ramesh Das and KK Shah from India. But there's so much Sharon stuff, and this is getting to the level of obsequious stuff now, but <laughs> there's, there's so much SS stuff here that uh, Rago and I, I think, are pretty sure that we want to do a separate film because yes. we, can't, we can't get it all in. All right. Uh, you know, Forget yeah, about Ram Das yeah. and Krishna Das. It's Sharon Salzberg starring, no supporting, nothing. <laughs> nothing. I'm really Sharon. flattered. Oh, my God. <laughs> Sharon on camera. But, and, uh, you know, so... Yeah, that's why I'm spending a lot of time with you, Sharon, and it's, uh, it's, it's hard to edit anything out of your pieces. And I mean, you know, it really is, because, because of the nature of it. It's, it's step by step. People can get it. If I can get it out there, people listening to this, you can get it. You know, thanks, Sharon, for being mm. on Mind Rolling with us. Thanks, Raghu. Thank you, David. Great to see you again, and we're going to see you in person soon. And folks, we're going to do a bunch of great different things with... Uh, people like Sharon and uh, who uh, who we have walked with for many many years hand in hand and Sharon I, I really I want to thank you for everything mm. as well and it's been uh, an honor to have you here this weekend and by the way folks I will we did record it all and so uh, you uh, it'll probably come out through SharonSalzberg.com and Ramdas.org which uh, as you know I'm very involved with and it is loving kindness in the face of adversity, which is uh, couldn't be a more important topic. So, thank you, Sharon. Mm, thank you, Ram Ram. Ram Ram. Yeah.